Hi and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca. If you weren't here when I introduced myself, my name is Leanne and I'm the lead pastor here. And this is the time of the service where we spend some time learning together about the Bible and what God may have to say to us. A few years ago, I attended a writer's conference. Leslie and I went. Actually, it was just about a year ago. And the reason we went was actually because we uh, really liked the speakers that were going to be there. They were two writers that we really appreciated. Um, Not so much that I consider myself a writer, although I guess I am a writer. Some of you know that I blog and so on. I do really like writing. Uh, But I maybe wasn't a writer like some of those at the conference because a number of people there had written novels or books And the main reason they had for attending was to find publishers, to find agents, so that they could get their book published. One of the things that I learned at this conference, and I found this very interesting, was what it takes to get something published by, if you're not self-publishing. And there was a theme that kept coming up when agents and publishers spoke. And this is what they had to say. Know your pitch. You have to have your pitch perfect. And what they meant by that was, they said, you need to be able to describe what you've written in one or two sentences that would make someone want to buy it. That's how you have to be able to describe your story. One of the expressions they've used, and maybe you've heard this before, was the idea of an elevator pitch. And this is what this means. That if you got stuck in an elevator with an agent, that you could sell them your book in the length of an elevator ride. So in other words, just a couple of sentences. So let me give you some examples of what an elevator pitch might sound like. To pick a very famous book that some of you might know, uh, an elevator pitch might be a young boy discovers that he is actually a wizard and begins a journey at a magical school. Any guesses on that book, some of you? Harry Potter, very good. Now, this also works for movies. So to pick a famous Christmas movie, An elevator pitch for this Christmas movie might be, on Christmas Eve, a despairing man gets a glimpse of what his life would have looked like if he'd never been born. What movie? It's wonderful. Doesn't it make you want to watch it? That's a good elevator pitch. Now, uh, first of all, there's a handout in your bulletin with notes that you can follow. I forget to say this every week. So if you would like to follow along with uh, some notes, you can, or you can also just listen, of course. There is a book that we have been looking at together as a church, if you've been here. It's actually a book within a book because it's part of the Bible. And the Bible is a collection of smaller books. And the book of the Bible that we've looked at this fall and we're going to continue to look at in the months to come is the book of Matthew. This was written down by a follower of Jesus whose name was Matthew after Jesus died, rose again, and went to heaven. And I believe... That if Matthew had somehow ended up in an elevator in the Middle East in the year, you know, 50, that his elevator pitch could have went like this. A man came to earth who was called Jesus, and he was the Messiah we were waiting for. A lot of people would say, a lot of scholars would say, that is the crux of the book of Matthew. That is why Matthew wrote this book to say, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the pitch. Now, to understand what that pitch means, 
these might be words that you haven't heard before. Messiah, what does that mean? Let me give you a little bit of background about why this would have been significant. And that involves looking at who Matthew wrote this book for. He wrote it for all of us. It was meant to be God's word for all of us, but he wrote it down. God used him to write it down. But we believe Matthew had a particular group of people in mind that he really wanted to understand this message. And it was people of Jewish faith. We sometimes call them the Israelites. I'll use those words interspersed during this sermon. Uh, Who were living at this time that Jesus was alive, so the first century. And he wants them to understand who Jesus is. And I have to give you some background on that. So God, many, many years before this, hundreds of years before, even thousands, had come to a man named Abraham. And he had explained to him that he was going to make a covenant, a promise with him that God would never break. And this covenant was that he said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to have a lot of descendants. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And one day all the world will be saved through you. That's when the covenant began. And this ultimately became, Abraham's descendants became Jewish race, the Israelites. And we can read their story in the part of the Bible, the first two-thirds that we now call the Old Testament, which are all things that happened before Jesus came. And these, are, these books were, uh, were and are the Jewish holy books. And in these books, it explains a lot of what happened. So after this, again, Abraham had a number of children, had children, had children. They ended up in this land, God promised, but through a series of events, they actually ended up as slaves in another country, in Egypt. God led them, had to save them, and then lead them out of Egypt. They settled back into the land that God had promised them, and they began to have a series of kings and rulers, but things continued to be difficult often. The kings didn't always follow God, and things uh, continued to have a, a lot of struggle for them. There were seasons of exile, and when we finally get to the time that Jesus came to earth, they'd been through a lot in the few centuries prior to this. They are living in what's now called Palestine, or we would call that the country of Israel, or whatever word you would prefer, depending on your, depending on your political leanings. And, but what's happened is, over and over, people have taken them over. And so there was a season when Babylon has come, and that was a big empire, and Babylon took them all and, and brought a bunch of them, uh, they're called the exile, to Babylon, some stayed. Then they came back and settled. But then other people took over. The Persians took over, and the Greeks took over. And then by the time we get here, they're actually being ruled by Rome, which at the time Jesus was born was a huge empire. And even though they felt like this is our land and our people and God has given it to us, they are being ruled by Rome. And they once again want to be saved. They want God to save them. They want God to remember God's covenant with them. And the good news was they had lots of promises from God after this that God was going to do this. Because during this era when kings were ruling, God would send prophets. Now, prophets weren't fortune tellers. They were people that would speak God's word. And we have lots of examples of prophets in this Old Testament, the books near the end, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea. And they were prophets who would come all at different times, and they would say, here's God's word for you. Sometimes the prophecies were about what was going to happen in the next 10 minutes, sometimes in the next year or two. But some, the people of Israel were still waiting, waiting for God to fulfill. They were looking at these books, and they were saying, when is God going to come and save us? And one of the promises they were looking forward to was the coming of a Messiah. And Messiah means one who will deliver us. The Greek word for that is Christ. 
And so into this, Matthew writes, and he says, listen, everybody, those of you who grew up waiting, those of you who have been reading these books, those of you who have been reading God's word, this is what I want to tell you. Jesus is it. That's one of the main trajectories of the book of Matthew. He is the Messiah. And one of the ways that he does this, that he makes this point throughout the book of Matthew, is he quotes the Old Testament. Remember, that's what we, we call it the Old Testament. They just would have called it their scriptures. So he quotes the scriptures of their people to explain exactly how Jesus fulfills them. These are called fulfillment quotations, and it's a thing Matthew's known for. It's kind of Matthew's shtick, fulfillment quotations, which is when he says, this was to fulfill, and then he'll quote from the scripture. There are 10 fulfillment uh, quotations in Matthew, and five of them are in the story of Jesus' birth, which is interesting. During Advent, which is the next few weeks, as I've said, we're going to look at these passages in the birth narrative, in the birth story, when and Matthew says, this was written to fulfill. And we're going to talk about who, how he, who Jesus is the Messiah, and also what kind of Messiah Jesus was. And just like Matthew, who went, came to his people, and he said, are you going to recognize it? Are you going to see that Jesus is this Messiah? My prayer is that we will also ask ourselves, do we see Jesus as our Messiah? Our series is called My Messiah, as I believe that Jesus can be our Messiah, too, in all the ways we need to be saved today. So today we're actually going to do, like, a whirlwind review of all five fulfillment passages in the birth narrative. Are you ready? You're so excited. I know you just can't wait. So if you want to follow along, you can turn to Matthew 1, which, uh, Matthew 2, which is on page 783 of the Pew Bibles, or you could use your phones, because I'm going to read almost all of the Christmas story, what we call the Christmas story. And you're going to hear this happen over and over. So it's on, uh, pay, it's Matthew uh, chapter 2. Actually, I keep saying this. It's actually Matthew chapter 1, forgive me. Um, and I'm going to start with the first fulfillment passage, which says this, and it's found in Matthew 1, verses 20, verse 22 and 23. And it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, let me read what happens before this. Starting at verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So from another book in the Bible, we know that an angel came to a young woman named Mary and said, you are going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She was already engaged to a man named Joseph, and at this time, the betrothal, like to be engaged was almost as serious as being married, which is why Joseph said, I'm going to have to divorce her because 
my experience is most guys don't believe that God made you pregnant. So um, he said, so he debates this, and Joseph ends up having another dream where God says, no, this is exactly God's plan, and they get married. So you are, did you hear the fulfillment passage in there? You already heard it. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give you a son. You will call him Emmanuel. This is from Isaiah 7 and 14. The book of Isaiah, which is in the Bible, was written 800 years before this was written down. Now, it's important to remember when those first words of Isaiah were spoken. He was a prophet during the reign of a king named Ahaz. Now, I think I mentioned that um, at one point, the nation of Israel was divided in two. They basically split. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Ahaz is king in Judah. They've already split by this time. Things are going bad, partly because Ahaz himself was a bad king. He did not follow God. It actually says he even sacrificed his own children to other gods. But he was attacked. During this time, he was getting attacked and besieged. And there's all these, remember how I talked about how there's all these superpowers, and they were all around. And they're getting closer, and things are looking really bad for Ahaz. And he is trying desperately to deal with this so much that he actually asks ungodly other countries to help him. He ends up desecrating the temple so that they would uh, give him the help he's asked for. And Isaiah comes and says, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be a child and give to you a son and call him Emmanuel. Some believe that this passage was actually fulfilled in Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who comes next. And Hezekiah is a good king. And he turns back to God. Importantly here, it says that the word Emmanuel here means God with us. And so what Ahaz is being promised here, even in the midst of when he's really turning from God, um, is that, well, he's done a lot to turn from God, is that someone's going to be born. A girl's going to have a baby. The presence of God will be with them, and God is going to deliver and save the nation. It's important to remember that if you were a Jew living in the first century, you probably didn't read Isaiah and read that passage and say, oh, this means there's still a Messiah coming. You likely thought it had already come in some form. Maybe Hezekiah, that he had debates about who these things were. So this is what's really, really neat about what Matthew does here. Matthew makes clear that this passage meant more. That maybe it hadn't come true. Maybe there were some still waiting for it. And he says that passage has happened today. And we can read that story elsewhere that this virgin has conceived a child and this child will be born, and we're going to know it's Emmanuel, God, with us. So see how it's fulfilled? That's just the first one. Let's look at the next one. So if we keep reading in chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of Jew, the Jews? We saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, again... 
Herod was a really bad king. Things are not good right now. He's a bad leader. And uh, we, I could spend many sermons talking about these people who come, who see a star and recognize it means a king was born. And so when they go to the current king and they say, show us where the king's going to be born, Herod quite obviously is nervous about this. Obviously, they are familiar with their prophecies, right? He says, so this Messiah you've all been waiting for, where do your scriptures say he's going to be born? And then Matthew quotes from another book of the Bible, Micah 5.2, also centuries old. He lives around the same time as Isaiah. And it says, as I've already read, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, out of you will come a shepherd for my people Israel. Matthew actually does something a little fun here. He doesn't quote it directly. Um, the original passage does not say, are by no means least. He adds in, are by no means. He gives it a little extra emphasis. This was common. It's actually called the Targum. When you take a passage and you, you add to its meaning as people are listening, preachers do this a lot as well. And so um, he's really emphasizing something here. But it is in Micah. And this city of Bethlehem is actually just a little town. We would never call it a city today. It's five miles south of Jerusalem. Nothing much exciting happened here. But Micah once again says years and centuries before that this will be a city of significance. I mean, who of us hasn't heard of Bethlehem? And again, Jesus says the same thing. Listen, listen, listen. See this passage? See how it all happened? See how Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Which in and of itself was a huge deal because Mary and Joseph had, weren't even living in Bethlehem when it happened. But there'd been a census that was called, and they had to travel to Bethlehem, and Mary had the baby while she was there. And there's all these pieces that are coming together to show all these prophecies coming true. Three more. Um, we're going to skip down a bit, and it just talks about what happened with Herod after that and how the Magi don't go back to Herod, and he's mad, which will be relevant later. Um, and we're going to pick up at verse 13. And it says... When they had gone, excuse me, just let me, uh, yes, excuse me. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is when the Magi had left. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Here, Matthew is quoting from Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, Hosea lives in the northern kingdom, in Israel. And when Hosea prophesies, things are going really, really bad in Israel. Israel actually... Uh, event it is really, this is really confusing. If you wonder this, we talk about Israel as like the whole nation of the people of God, but then there were the two countries that became Israel and Judah. It's a bit confusing, right? Israel actually eventually falls entirely. It is taken into exile, and it sort of just disappears. But then we still call the whole nation Israel, even though actually they're living in what was then called Judah. Just run with me. It, it works. So Hosea lives, we'll call it the northern kingdom, so as not to confuse you. And the northern kingdom is, is just in, in a state of, of disarray, and they will eventually be taken away, and they will be dispersed in many, in many ways. It's oversimplifying, but that's really what happens. And what Hosea is doing, this is kind of fun. Hosea is actually referring back to an even older part of their scriptures. And Hosea refers back 
Do you remember when I said how God's people, the Israelites or the Jews, were slaves in Egypt? And how God took them out of Egypt? So as Israel is falling, Hosea reminds them, remember how God saved you out of Egypt? God will save us again. And then Matthew does double duty here. He says, remember how Hosea said that God had said that I will take you out of Egypt? Same thing. And God has made it come true because the one who will save us will come up out of Egypt because Jesus had spent time there. Jesus had gone there. They'd gone to live in Egypt during a season as refugees. And, out of, and when Jesus comes back again, this prophecy comes true. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew is saying again, Jesus will deliver us, just like God delivered us out of slavery. We're going to keep reading. So it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And then picking up at verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. I'm just having a moment as I think of that little baby just born. In accordance with what he had learned from the Magi, then what was written through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And here, Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah 31, 15. This is just the worst part of the Christmas story. I'm actually going to preach on it in detail in a couple of weeks. But to, to just touch on it today, what we read is that Herod, who was known for being a horribly paranoid king, he actually killed several of his own sons to avoid uh, someone taking the throne. Just to make sure he's covered all his bases, orders that all the babies in Bethlehem under the age of two be killed. Um, it doesn't work. Jesus has already escaped to Egypt. But then Matthew quotes this passage from Jeremiah. And when Jeremiah is writing, he is writing to the southern kingdom, to Judah, when they are taken to exile at a different time. Ramah was, um, Ramah was north of Jerusalem. And as people were being taken to Babylon, there would have been a lot of women watching their sons being taken into exile, likely to never see them again. Jeremiah refers to the women weeping as they watch their sons taken, their husbands, their loved ones as well. And he talks about how they will not be comforted. Rachel, who is one of the, the matriarchs of the Jewish faith, faith, is used representatively here. They're weeping for their children. They're refusing to be comforted. And here again, Matthew takes this passage and says, this refers to what happens as well in Jesus, that there is a bigger story happening here. And now we get to the last one in the birth narrative. And we're starting at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Archelaus was also just bad news. He was a horrible ruler after Herod. He act, yeah, a lot of things went bad. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew, to the, he withdrew in the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene. 
So again, they're not from Bethlehem, but they end up having a baby in Bethlehem. And they're not from Egypt, but they end up living in Egypt. So it says Jesus is called out of Egypt. And they're not from Nazareth, but they end up setting, settling in Nazareth. And then there's this passage about him being called a Nazarene. But this is a funny one. Uh, that's not actually anywhere in the Old Testament. There is no verse that says he will be called a Nazarene. Scholars have a lot of fun. To be, yes, it's true, Teresa. Her face looks horrified. Um, it is shocking, isn't it? <laughs> I like when people react and, and feel the, the shock that I also feel when I read these things. It's not a direct quote from Scripture. And it, and it actually says here even, right, was said through the prophets. It's not quoting in the same way. But it is a fulfillment passage. And many scholars think that this actually, in its own roundabout way, and many people love to do these things as they read Scripture at this time, does fulfill a passage that we actually talked about a lot last year, if you were part of Mount Hamilton last year, found in Isaiah 11.1, 1, which says, says, A shoot will come up from the branch uh, from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Um, and that passage, we believe, refers to Jesus. Jesse was the father of a man named David, who was a great king, and God had said to David that his descendant would be the Messiah. Um, and so when we say out of the stump of Jesse, a branch will rise, this is the fulfillment of this. And actually earlier, Matthew does the genealogy in that first chapter to show how Jesus does exactly that. How do these passages connect? Uh, the word in Hebrew for branch is nezer. He will be called a Nazarene, is what many argue. So that's a lot of passages. <laughs> Perhaps by now you see why I think it's a great elevator pitch for Matthew to say, my book is about showing you that Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Over and over, Matthew wants to make this clear to his people, and he'll do it further on, more out after the birth story, that the Messiah you've been waiting for has come, that we see it even in all the little details of his birth. We see how God has been at work what Matthew wants to say, what he actually really says in many ways, is that the Old Testament, that the Hebrew Scriptures, were like one giant arrow pointing to Jesus. That when we read this part, it's all pointing towards something that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus has finished the covenant that God has promised. Jesus is exactly that one when God said to Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you because he is the one who will save us. And the reason is because he is Emmanuel, as that passage said in Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. The Messiah would not simply be another human, would not be a military general. You can imagine that if you had been living under the rule of an empire, that your assumption would be that God would save you through someone coming and defeating that empire. That's usually how things worked. So it would be a general, a military ruler, a king. Matthew says, no, it's actually Jesus. And it's actually the one who is God, God's very self, because Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus has done all that we need to be saved, and you can know this Jesus, and you can be saved. And he writes to his brothers and his sisters and his fellow Jews and then all who would read to come and says, you can know the Messiah because the Messiah is God with all of us. What will this mean for us 2,000 years later? 
What does it mean for us that Jesus is still the Messiah? Many of you are waiting. You may be waiting for all kinds of different things. You may be waiting excitedly for Christmas. You may be waiting for an illness to end. Maybe you've been suffering and you're tired of that. You may be waiting for the shadow of grief that you've been walking in to lift. You may be waiting to feel better, to find a job. I am personally waiting for the Trump administration to end. You, we may not all share the same views. You may feel the same way about Justin Trudeau. Fair, fair. We wait for different things. Jesus, in all those things, is still what we are waiting for. Jesus is always what we are waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah who saves and delivers us. It doesn't mean all those things are taken away, but that in it, Jesus is our hope because Jesus has come and will come again. What does it mean if this Messiah is Emmanuel? Uh, this is the great miracle at Christmas. The fancy theological word for it is the incarnation. That the Messiah God was, that the Messiah God was sending was in fact God, God's very self. As I said, they were likely awaiting a military ruler or a general. And God says, my plan is to send me. That's a pretty incredible thing. Imagine, if you will, that you're in a dispute with a neighbor. You're trying to uh, build a deck in your backyard, and they are causing a lot of grief for you, and you know you're in the right. And so you write your local counselor, and you say, can you help sort this up? You tried a lot of things. And your desire is just for the counselor to find a way to make this right. And one day you open your door, and the prime minister is standing there and says, let's walk over to your neighbor, and I'll tell him you're allowed to build the deck. That'd be kind of a big deal, right? That's kind of what they were doing, right? They were like, well, just send a counselor who will defeat Rome. Defeat Rome, like just deal with this issue at hand. God's like, no, I'm going to show up myself, and I'm going to defeat all the powers that are bigger than the world. That's what God did for us and still does for us waiting ones. <laughs> to those of us who wait, God has already shown up. And God will show up again. God will show up again and again this Advent. And one day Jesus will return. And we will see the fullness of all that God has promised. And because of that, we have hope even as we wait. Because all that was promised was fulfilled. And all that has been promised will be fulfilled again. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are so very cool, that you made all these things come to be in such an amazing way. Lord, I think of all those people who never could have imagined that they were reading what it would look like, how that would all come to be. They couldn't picture it. And Lord, a lot of us here can't picture how you're going to fix or make right the things in our lives either. Lord, give us hope. Amen.